I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, good morning, Christ City. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here. It's my joy to uh, be able to expound on God's word uh, this morning for you. Let's pray. Father God, it is so good to gather with your people, to gather in your presence, to worship you, to study the scriptures together. And Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would be present with us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, help me to be able to uh, speak exactly the words that you would want to be said in the manner that you would want it to be said, and that uh, your people would hear your word and would apply it to their lives, would be convicted by it and encouraged by it, that we might grow closer in your likeness, grow closer in, in unity as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in your book, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Keep your finger there. We will be uh, referencing that quite a bit today. Often preachers, they, they like to find catchy sermon introductions, and I'm no different. Uh, and I can think of no better one to start this morning than what Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, a man has his father's wife. Here was a man who was part of the Corinthian church who was known to be having ongoing sexual relationship sexual relations with his stepmother. This was not a one-time sin of passion, followed by broken-hearted repentance. Rather, it was known. It was ongoing. In fact, it was boasting about it. This was scandalous. And it was scandalous not only by God's standards. It is explicitly commanded, by the way, in case you didn't know this, not to sleep with one's father's wife. In Leviticus 18, in Deuteronomy 22, and Deuteronomy 27. But this was scandalous, even by Gentile or pagan standards. In fact, it's scandalous even in today's highly promiscuous and sexualized culture. That Paul would say, even by Gentile standards, is actually quite significant. Because, you see, throughout the Bible, God's people are distinct. They are distinct in the Old Testament, this distinctiveness was demonstrated in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But God's people were distinguished not only because the Lord was their God, but because they had God's law. Standards of conduct that would set them apart from the Gentiles. These standards were to highlight, of course, God's holy rights. God's people were to maintain distinctiveness by keeping the law and maintaining the purity of his people. Many sins, in fact, were punishable by death. Here's an abridged version of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. 
says this, if there is found among you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst. In the New Testament, however, this distinction changes. In the grace and in the providence of God, Jesus came to save all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. Those united through Christ, with Christ through, through faith, the church, would now be known as God's people. Now, this was actually very significant for the Corinthian church that we're reading about. Because like our church, it's made up primarily of Gentiles. That is non-Jews. And so by referring to this as something that not even the Gentiles would tolerate, implicitly implies that they assumed that they, Paul assumed that they were no longer pagans. They were no longer Gentiles. They were once outside, but because of Christ, they are now inside. And so with all of this in mind, I want to impress upon you, Christ City, the outrage that Paul felt when he heard of this sin. The egregiousness of this sin flies in the face of distinctiveness. And by saying that it was a sin that not even the Gentiles tolerated, not even the pagans tolerated, this double entendre would not have been lost. Now, why did I just spend so long talking about last week's passage? Well, because it dovetails very much into the verses that we're going to read today. You see, Paul's main argument in verses 9 through 13 is this. How God's people should exercise judgment inside the church is different from how God's people ought to relate to those outside the church. Paul was primarily concerned about the purity of the church. For in his mind, the categories of who is inside the church and who are outside are very clear. To continue to tolerate and accept ongoing habitual sin was to get the two mixed up. We'll look at the passage through three headings this morning. Number one, we'll look at it, uh, how the church must keep her purity. How the church must keep her purity. Number two, how the church must relate to the world. How the church must relate to the world. And thirdly, we'll look at how the church has hope unlike the world. How the church must keep her purity, how the church must relate to the world, and how the church has hope unlike the world. My aim this morning is threefold. First, I want to remind the church that we are a distinct people. We are a distinct people. And second, that our distinctiveness and our purity is actually necessary for our mission. And third, to warn the individual, God's people are identified with Christ. And thus, we must live in repentant faith. Well, let's dive in. How the church must keep her purity. 
Paul begins this part in chapter 5 by clarifying something that he had said in a previous letter. This previous letter is likely long lost, but we know from this reference that he had apparently told the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul clarifies that he did not mean any sexually immoral people or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, they would need to go out of the world. In other words, Paul recognizes that in the, in the world, there will be sin. There will be sinful people. That is what characterizes people on the outside. I don't know if this is news to you, but it's impossible to live in the world without touching evil, without encountering sin. Rather, Paul clarifies that those inside the church, those who bear the name of brother or sister, who are identified with Jesus Christ, yet are equally identified as sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, revilers, or drunkards, that we are not to associate with, not even to eat with such a one. Heavy passage. <laughs> now notice a few things. First, unlike the specific sin that Paul spoke about in last week's passage, Paul seems to have expanded this list now to include other sins. In addition to sexual immorality, Paul suggests that those who are greedy, who are swindlers, who are revilers, that is, one who abuses or slanders people, uh, drunkards, idolaters, they all fall into the same category. And second, perhaps a little less obvious, is that the categories Paul speaks about are actually the same categories found throughout Deuteronomy that seriously distinguished the Israelites from the rest of the world. Consider sexual immorality in Deuteronomy 22, 21 through 22, and chapter 30. Idolaters, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Slanderers, Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19. Drunkards, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. Swindlers, Deuteronomy 24, 7. And here, Paul is applying it to the church. He's saying, church, you are now God's people. Bride of Christ, you are called to be holy. Now, these lists of sins, they ought to provoke thought. For who among us has not had a lustful thought or dabbled in pornography or coveted something or stolen something or have insulted one another or have indulged in alcohol or have placed something above God? And it would be right to pause and to consider our own sin. These lists actually ought to prick our consciences. They ought to remind us of the seriousness, of the gravity of our sin. But then another set of questions inevitably arise. Must we be perfectly sinless? I mean... 
Isn't this a, a little bit extreme, Paul? Wouldn't that exclude everyone? Now, no doubt the Corinthians must have thought the same of Paul's previous letter. And they pretty much responded by ignoring his advice. <laughs> I mean, the fact that there was this man in their midst ought to continue in this is evidence that they kind of scoffed at his letter. Perhaps they thought it was unrealistic. And if we're really honest, don't we kind of shirk at these passages too? I mean, we read them, but do we really take them seriously? And certainly there's an eschatological tension here, okay? I recognize that. We are saints who have been justified by Jesus. We have been declared righteous who still sin. And yet one day we will be brought to perfection. And so the question remains, what, what, what does Paul really mean here? Well, first notice that Paul doesn't actually list specific sins, but rather the persons. This is actually quite significant. The people that Paul has in mind are people whose sinful behaviors have become so prevalent that it has become their de facto identity. In other words, they are so characteristic, so characterized by them, that their sinful behavior seems entirely normal to them, as if it is a part of just who they are. And it doesn't take much imagination to work that out in our contemporary culture and context. In today's world, with all of the identity politics playing out in a myriad of ways where sin has become so ingrained that people simply assume that they were born this way, that this is part of their identity. And I'm not just talking about sexual identity. Consider some of these examples. The unmarried couple in the church who are cohabitating together, having premarital sex, and thinking that this is completely okay. Or the spouse who speaks abusively or contemptuously to his wife or her husband, thinking that this is simply how couples normally go through conflict. Or the man or woman who turns to porn or alcohol regularly to numb the pain of life. Or the financially irresponsible person who just repeatedly cheats others out of money. Paul is saying in verses 9 and 11 that we are not to associate, not to mix with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, who bears the name of Jesus Christ, if at the same time he is identified as sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, of course, as we talked about last week, as Brian talked about last week, this is the last step in church discipline. Jesus himself uh, describes in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, an escalating protocol, shall we say, of lovingly confronting the sinner in hopes that he or she will repent. 
And I want to reiterate that. I want to reiterate, reiterate that a hundred times. A genuine Christian, when lovingly confronted with his or her sin, will repent. A genuine Christian, when lovingly confronted with his or her sin, will repent. But Paul here is talking about the unrepentant sinner. The one who continues on and yet claims to bear the name of Jesus Christ. That person must be put out of the church because not only is his or her sin infectious within the church. Verse 6, the name and the reputation of Christ is at stake. Now, practically speaking, this can mean a number of things. Uh, including being asked not to serve, including not to partake in communion, not participating in community groups, to excommunication altogether from the church. There are a a whole spectrum of things, and I think this is where um, this is where there's some discernment, some wisdom that needs to be applied. But this much is clear. The person is not to be given the regular means of close fellowship with Christ's community. The person is not to be given the benefits of being in close fellowship with Christ's community. Having been in various forms of church leadership for the better part of 25 years, I've been a part of the church discipline process, unfortunately, a number of times. And it grieves me each time. I lose sleep over it. I lose sleep over it because in discipline, one is trying to communicate a very deep love for the one who's being disciplined in a way that seems hurtful. And it's not easy. While church discipline hurts, it's never intended to harm. And it's always done in love for the sinner and for Christ. It's not a power move, but rather it is one done where the shepherd mourns deeply for his sheep. He longs, he longs deeply for the sheep to be free from the enslavement to this habitual sin. It's not a coincidence, I think, that in the preceding passage in Matthew 18, uh, you can look it up afterward, It describes the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 in order to save the one. That is the heart behind church discipline. The first case I was ever involved in concerned a member of my congregation who had gone on a mission trip only to begin and to maintain an adulterous affair with a married man. When confronted, she was unrepentant and refused to break off the relationship. This escalated until the sin was known to the whole church, 
And the gut-wrenching decision was made to remove her from fellowship so that she might come to her senses and repent. This is serious. It's serious. Now, two common objections are often raised. Two common objections are often raised. The first is this. Well, who are you to judge? Often it's not phrased quite like that. It's a little bit more polite. (laughs) We're Canadians after all. It tends to come in the form of, please let me just sort this out between me and God. And Paul tells us in verse 12 that no, it is the function of the church and particularly of the overseers of the church to judge those inside. And it's a means of grace. It is a group of brothers and sisters who love you enough, who are willing to inconvenience you and themselves, who are willing to lose sleep, mulling over how to communicate this to you in the most loving way possible, to have a difficult conversation with you so that you might be spared from being judged by God. You see, the judgment of God for unrepentant sinners is also very clear. We just have to kind of move a few verses down in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so I pray, dear brothers and sisters, Christ City, that it will never come to that. The defining character of a Christ follower is one who holds faith and a good conscience, 1 Timothy 1.19, is one who walks humbly before the Lord in repentant faith. May we be ones who have ears to hear and eyes to see and faith to repent when we are confronted with our sin. Another common objection is an appeal to what we'll talk about next, namely, well, how the church acts towards outsiders. Isn't the church supposed to welcome sinners? Aren't we supposed to welcome sinners? And indeed we are. But outsiders don't claim to be a brother. They don't claim the name of Christ. And that, my friends, is the key. Of course outsiders are welcome to our our Sunday gatherings. Of course they are welcome to to worship with us. But you cannot claim to be a brother in Christ and continue on in habitual sin. You can be one or the other, but you cannot be both. You You cannot claim to be in Christ and continue in unrepentant sin because true Christ followers will always repent. It may take a long time. It may even take church discipline. But someone who is truly, truly in Christ, they will always repent. 
that is a characteristic. It's an indicative of who they are. And so with that, let us move to our second point. To grab a sip of water. Second point is this, how the church must relate to the world. How the church must relate to the world. In verse 10, Paul offers a clarification, and it's almost a parenthetical point, right? Saying that he did not mean in his original letter not to associate with the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters at all. Nope, indeed, one would need to go out of the world in order to do that. We are not called to go out of the world. Indeed, we are called to be sent into the world. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 18, As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them, church, into the world. The church is to be distinct from the world, yet sent into the world. And it is precisely because we are to maintain the purity of the church that we can be distinct from the world. Jesus told us as much on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Those of you uh, who know how to cook a good steak will know that you salt the outside of the steak before you grill it. And the reason is simple. The salt gives the meat flavor by permeating into the steak. It's not the other way around. Your steak becomes salty. The salt does not become meaty. And likewise, the picture here is of a pure church, distinct from the world, but sent into the world, shining light forth into the world and preserving it that it might be redeemed. And I think there are several important implications to all of this. First, it means that we ought to build relationships with those in the world whom we may well disagree with on major moral issues. We may have different political views whose lifestyles and behaviors we might otherwise find abhorrent. Jesus himself went to sinners. He counted tax collectors and prostitutes amongst his friends. We are to love them as Christ would. We are to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them as appropriate in both word and in deed. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. When the watching world sees that the church does not repay evil for evil, but rather blessing for insult, when, when they see you suffer for doing good, they will wonder about the hope that you have. Steve Byers, a prominent biblical counselor and pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Lafayette, Indiana, writes an eye-opening encounter he once had with a, with a local sheriff. Byers writes this, quote, While he was grateful for the church groups who came through the jail to offer Bible study and prayer meetings with his prisoners, he said, it would make an even greater impact to, quote, stand at the back of the door and meet the inmates when they are released. The sheriff goes on to talk about the problem of repeat offenses. 
of how prisoners have often burned bridges with, the, with their family and friends. And then he said this, he asks this heart-piercing question. Can the church help? Can the church help? I think the church indeed can help. Vars writes of how his church began to gain a vision, uh, a vision for and pray for at-risk women. He says he'll never forget the day when a local foundation contacted him about this desire. It was already a busy time. They had just started opening this new community center. They were offering this, uh, they were launching this new free church-based seminary program. And yet this foundation leader persisted. She had been praying about helping someone start a faith-based residential treatment center for girls ages 14 through 28 struggling with unplanned pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, eating disorders, and self-harm. Pastor Viers was determined to show all the reasons why it couldn't be done. After doing a feasibility study, it seemed that a facility capable of serving 24 young women in this fashion would cost $1.25 million to build and another $1.25 million to, uh, to, to have in operating costs. And so to make a long story short, he explained to this foundation leader in a subsequent meeting that there were 2.5 million reasons why Faith Church could not launch a residential treatment center. And that's when the foundation essentially said, fine, we would like to give you $2.5 million. <laughs> and thus the ministry called Vision of Hope was born. A ministry that has so impacted their community in Lafayette that even secular institutions and judges often send people to Faith Church because I don't know what you guys do, but they don't come back reoffending. By the way, I have a link up on the slide there. If you get a chance, check it out. It's actually pretty cool, especially uh, Alexandra's uh, testimony. Uh, I actually wish we could play it today, but uh, that would take too much time. You see, Christians ought to be on the front lines of rehabilitation. For too long, the church has eschewed her responsibility thinking that social and crime problems are purely in the realm of secular and professional treatment centers. No, church. Let us remember our mission to be actively called into the world. And this brings us to our second implication. You see, we have a tendency, especially here on the West Coast, to seek escape rather than fulfill our duty to engage with the world, we look around, we see sin, we see suffering, we see the evils of the world, and we just want to escape. You know, while we don't form monasteries like Benedict did in the early church, we, uh, we do that in our 21st century uh, rendition. The temptation to escape actually manifests itself in a various number of different ways. Some escape by climbing a mountain every other weekend. Some run from the institutionalized church into a self-propelled me, myself, and Jesus religion. Some escape 
as uh, Brandt talked about this morning, in, into debating about secondary issues. But do you realize that by doing so, you are dividing the church? Paul is saying that we ought not to divide the church. That's what we've been studying all along in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? We ought to seek the unity of the church by participating in it, keeping her holy, that we might engage with the world. A third implication is this. Is a third implication of how the church must relate to the world is in our view of ethics, of politics, of evil. And here, let me try to address something briefly. It's actually a troubling trend that, uh, that has, has been kind of emerging in the evangelical world. Often an issue arises when it's discovered that something has some sort of connection with some sort of sin or evil in the distant past. Take nearly any issue, trace back far enough, and you will find sin. You will find evil. Many will seek to dissociate themselves with that in the name of purity, thinking that they are keeping pure by not partaking in it. But it is impossible, hear this, it is impossible to live in this world without ever touching evil from the past. We are worshiping today on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Sawaltooth nations, which were unrightfully taken from the First Nations. We buy groceries, which often ride on railways, built by exploited Chinese workers in the 19th century. In fact, people who think this way do not go back far enough. We live in a fallen world caused by the sin of Adam and Eve. And so we must understand this idea of purity. Paul is not talking about purity from the outside infecting the inside. Rather, he's talking about a purity from the inside that must be purged. And by getting it mixed up, we actually execute judgment on outsiders. Paul here is saying that it's not within the realm of the church to judge. God judges those on the outside. Now, of course, I understand there are issues of conscience. Of course, there are principles of proximity that we must take into consideration as well. I am not saying, hear this, I am not saying that we should go and condone evil acts. we should pray earnestly that we might have a sensitive, a godly conscience. But we must not seek to be rid of evil apart from Jesus Christ, because it is an affront to the gospel. Christians are pure not because we've somehow managed to avoid all evil in the world, but because Jesus Christ has redeemed us from evil, and he has set us apart to be righteous. He has made us a distinct people. Which brings us to our third point, how the church has hope unlike the world. How the church has hope unlike the world. Man, we've covered some <laughs> two very heavy topics. 
We've seen on the, the, the one hand the seriousness of sin, and on the other, the mission of the church as being sent into a world full of sin. But what I want to end with a lasting picture of how both of these fit together. Why Paul is so adamant in his exhortation to keep his church pure. As I noted earlier, uh, Paul references the Old Testament a lot in this chapter. He references the Old Testament a lot. Brandt briefly talked about the Passover foundations in the earlier verses, but here reference is found in the last part of verse 13. For those inside, we are to, quote, purge the evil from among you. You see in Deuteronomy, in the Deuteronomy passages that I shared earlier, there's a repeated refrain at the end of each. It goes roughly like this. You know, uh, the sin is listed, purge the evil from among you. The sin is listed, purge the evil from among you. The sin is listed, purge the evil from among you, and so on and so forth. In the Old Testament, this literally meant drag them out of the city and stone them to death. The wages of sin is death. But the gospel is this. Jesus, Jesus, though he was the sinless son of God, he was purged on our behalf. He was unjustly expelled from among his people, dragged out of the city, crucified on the cross, and left to die. It is to put in perspective the world's most evil act ever committed, the murder of the Son of God. He suffered the judgment of God on behalf of us, that we, his bride, those that bear the name of brother or sister, those that bear the name of Jesus Christ, might be redeemed. It's by his blood that we are purified and by his righteousness that we are declared righteous. For the Christian, this offers great hope. It means that when there is sin in our hearts, we purge that sin by metaphorically dragging it out of our lives and nailing it to the crucified Son of God. We weep over it as we picture the nails driven into the hands caused by our sin. And yet we see at the same time his outstretched arms demonstrating his deep love and his mercy for us. We are assured that because he was purged on our behalf, we are not. We cling on to the hope that he offers us, the power to walk in godliness because of the Holy Spirit. This is what repentant faith looks like. But for the unrepentant sinner, to call yourself a brother or sister 
is to make a mockery of the cross and his name. It is to pervert his justice. It is to spit in his face and say, I can do this on my own, thank you very much. And to these, we are to drag them out of the church, back to the outside where they belong, that they might face the judgment of God alone. You see, one day, we all will have to face the judgment of God. And on that day, we will either need to face it alone and bear the full consequences of that judgment alone, which is eternal death. Or Jesus will say, no, Father, this is one of mine. I've paid the price for this precious one. I've paid the price for this precious one. Which one will it be for you? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, this is a difficult passage. But even in these difficult passages, in these difficult words, your love for us is so abundantly clear. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. May we be a people who are forever grateful. May we never be a people who walk in unrepentant sin, that you would give us the grace and the faith to believe, to continue to walk humbly before you, to keep our eyes focused on you, that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. And Father, we long for the day when we will be with you. We long for the day when, when sin will be no more. And in the meantime, help us as a church to be sent into the world that we might fulfill the mission to which you have called us with all of the authority, with all of the power that you have given us through your Holy Spirit, that we might proclaim this good news to all who would hear, that your church might be called, that we would be a distinct people, that we would be a people who... Uh, who would be with you in all eternity. Father, give us wisdom to know how to interact with those outside the world, that we might, uh, as Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. May we be so confident in that hope that we do that. And Father, for the person who is in habitual sin this morning, would you convict them? Remove all of the crutches that they may know that you are enough. Give them faith. Faith is just the size of a mustard seed to repent and to believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.